Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the DLC Drop Podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome my friend Jeff Moore to join us on the show. If you don't know Jeff, he is formerly the Chief Revenue Officer of Circuit of the Americas, Executive Vice President, let me just say that more clearly, Executive Vice President, Sales and Marketing at the Dallas Stars, and a high up intern of the Dallas Sports Commission. Is that, am I right about that? Number one intern. Number one intern. Yeah. Man. First among the, amongst the least. Is there a plaque on the wall for that? or Probably a bullet hole somewhere, but no plaque. Okay. Okay. I'm learning a lot. Jeff is now currently the president and CEO of Team Envy. That is our home team in Dallas, which I am rocking on the regular. You're here. You and yeah. I know each other a little bit. Yeah. So based on, I was at GameStop, head of partnerships, looking for some partners, Dallas Fuel. So I think one thing that I thought was, just to give a little background, one thing that was so cool that really opened my eyes in esports and partnerships was to see what you guys did with watch parties Mm -hmm. in Dallas. And some people know that I joined GameStop on my first day. They said, we want you to figure out esports for us. I was like, yeah, I got hired for partnerships. And it was like, also figure out esports and influencers for us. I was like, oh, you're paying me three times more? (laughs) No? Right, no. Great. And so it was like, Obviously, I was aware of esports, but I wasn't sure. in, in, in the industry yet. Sure, sure. And so it was just really tasked to me, figure this out. Yep. And no, very few people have figured it out. And right. from a retail perspective, it's a challenge to make money at it. Sure. And so one of the cool things was seeing how the Dallas Fuel, I'd be interested to hear the insider's perspective of what you were going through with having right. your task with building a fan base but you can't have any games year one in your demo. They're all in LA. And yep. so what amazed me was seeing that you guys had just gone to local bars and said, hey, flip the TV on to the Overwatch channel and 700 people showed up. Yeah, It was a little bit less daunting for me and I was not there yet. So Shea Butler was really taking that ball and running with it. Yeah, But the same thing happened when we essentially had the Minnesota North Stars move to Dallas. And then we were exceedingly lucky that the owner of the Stars hired some really experienced executives who I look back now and they were like in their late 30s. And so now I think, why did I listen to those guys? They were so young. But but they brought a couple of guys in from the Red Wings and a couple of guys in from the Pittsburgh Penguins. And the guys from the Red Wings, Jim Lights and Jeff Kogan, were just phenomenal sources of energy and and they essentially created a fan base out of just all these people that that liked the NHL and liked hockey and then it, it turned into a love the one you're near thing sure so there was already some group of people that knew it because they were here from somewhere else and so then it was just a get in front of them get close to them develop a relationship with them and then just convert them over time and so the same thing with formula 1 is that the United States Grand Prix had not been in the country for seven or eight years. When it was at Indianapolis, it had withered a little bit. There were some problems with tires or some problems with trying to stack them on top of other more popular races and things like that. But it had became common knowledge that wasn't worth the price to have it in America. And so we brought it back into Austin 
example, we had great success by essentially staying authentic to the core experience and then just ramping it up a thousand percent in terms of entertainment and experience and, and quality and things like that. So when it came to when it comes to esports, we're following a similar plan, which is what is where is esports in its product life cycle right now compared to other entertainment ventures and teams and leagues and things like that that we're early familiar with. And I would say it's really early. Is it yeah. 1966 Cowboys or 1972 Cowboys or whatever. It's really early, probably more like the late sixties for the Cowboys. And so if you go back in time and say, Hey, we're going to be playing at the cotton bowl, but we have some good players. People are starting to like us. We're in a growth marketplace. Dallas is going to grow over the next 50, 60 years. Then you'd feel like you had a pretty good spot. And so then it's just about doing the work at a quality level consistently because as Einstein would say is that time is really one of the most powerful forces in the universe and being able to essentially have compound interest, which is just stacking work on top of work or stacking money on top of money is a very powerful thing. So if you could, like when people talk about movies in the past, oh, if we time travel to the past, we don't want to change anything because it could have a profound effect today, yet they will never change a habit they have today to have a profound effect for 30 years from now. And so what you have to do is you just have to get started and do good work and then just let the most powerful force in the universe, time, happen. Interesting. I've never thought about that before. I haven't time traveled yet. (laughs) It's on the to-do list. It is. It's a bucket list thing. It is. It's, it's, I've got a couple things before that. Yeah, sure. But I feel the time travel machine would be before that is before that. But I feel once I get to time travel, I could just change my list however I want. Well, it gives you you lots of editing options. Speaking of time travel, let's time travel back to when you joined the Dallas International Sports Commission. So you have what I we were talking earlier and we we were talking about how you started your career. And what I thought was interesting was the choice that you had at that moment. Yeah. Growing up, my my father self-made entrepreneur, didn't go to college. And so at a very young age, he was, I hate to say it this way, he was, time was on his side because he couldn't afford to go to college. And so he both didn't have the expense or the time. So he joined the Holiday Inn uh, managerial program as the youngest person accepted into it. And so at a very young age, he started learning how to manage hotels. And then he turned into um, a hotel owner. And so when we were growing up, when I was more aware of what was going on, he owned hotels and restaurants in Oklahoma City. Is that like a franchise thing? Well, he would essentially, he had different flags on different ones. So one was, you know, this franchise, another was this franchise. And so for a short period of time, we were doing pretty well. And so we would, had a timeshare plane, would fly to our timeshare condo in Crested Butte and go skiing for spring break, or would fly to the OU Nebraska game in Lincoln and go to the game. So for a short period of this glowing time, we had things pretty, pretty good. And then as I was a, so every summer I would go work at a hotel or a restaurant to kind of learn the, is either punishment for my attitude or to learn the family business. I'm not sure which one it was exactly, but as, so as a senior college, uh, I just assumed that's what I was going to do. And so then we went the, we had an oil bust. Everyone in Oklahoma city had a bad time. Our family went bankrupt and we lost everything, lost our home, lost the family business. 
things like that. And so the, so that, that feels bad when that happens, you feel bad for your father, feel bad for your family, whatever, but it's also tremendously freeing. It's very liberating from a, you're about to now graduate from college. So now what are you going to do? Because I never really liked the hotel and restaurant business. I never really found a thing that really resonated for me in that. Sure. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I got a scholarship to go to Baylor to get my MBA and work for a professor. So as I did that, it took about a year and a half. And, and considering I was in a fraternity in college, it was a little bit like going to the Betty Ford Clinic and getting a degree at the same time. So I was had no friends. I, you know, I look, used to live in a fraternity house with 90 other guys. Now I'm by myself. I'm no friends studying all the time, that sort of thing. And so when I get out, I wasn't really the typical, oh, yeah, these firms will hire you to be a finance analyst or whatever. I wasn't really that type of uh, professional. And as I was searching for my thing, it was a lot of sales jobs, marketing jobs, things like that. And again, having no money, I didn't have a car. I didn't, whatever. I was free. I was free to risk something. And so my brother called me one night. It was about, it was a Friday night, Saturday night. Older or younger brother? Older brother. Older by about a year and a half. And he said, hey, I found your job. And I was like, I won. He goes, well, go to the grocery store and buy the Dallas Morning News because that's back in the old days when the paper would be delivered all over the, the right. region of the country. Yeah. So I drive there and pick up a Dallas Morning News. On the front page, it's like Dallas International Sports Commission has been formed and Tom Landry is hired, recently fired by the Cowboys, hired to be the chairman. They hired this young woman from the Atlanta Olympic uh, successful bid to come start it here. And so it has article after article, Roger Staubach's on the board, wow. Lamar Hunt's on the board all these business leaders and CEOs are on the board. And he goes, that's what you should do. And I was like, yeah, great. You yeah. Know, like, I should also run for president yeah, of the United right, States, but right, neither is going right. to So yeah. I did in retrospect, a very stupid thing, which is the next day I go and I write a cover letter and, but I have no experience. And so if there's not that there'll be young people watching this, but if you are, sometimes you can feel like you're trapped that you don't right. have any experience but for entry-level jobs, they want a certain amount of experience. So you're like, how do you it's ever get started? Problem. So I feel trapped. And so I did a, a thing I wouldn't actually recommend anyone do, but I attached my graduate school transcript and I highlighted the courses that I thought would have some relevance to show that, hey, in this course, we went over this concept and whatever. So it's like, whatever it was. I can't even remember what things I thought were relevant back then. But never do that. Ne- to all, never, all listeners, never, do, never if you're listening to this and you're halfway paying attention, <laughs> don't do that. And you heard that. The call out here is don't do that. But if you can figure out a way to be unique and differentiate yourself without doing that, which was a terrible idea, then do the thing you're thinking. You were of now. unique though. You I were. Was, you did stand out. Yeah. They're like this guy. So can luckily, believe, yeah. the the young woman who was in charge of selecting the interns liked that because it was different than the 700 other applications she got or letters she got had a little more heft to it had something whatever so i got an interview and uh, and as i found out later that i was offered the internship i was going to lunch with my brother in in the west end at the time and i'd also gotten a call back to say hey you're being offered this other job and this other job has a salary a bonus a company car all things i needed I was sleeping on my brother's couch sounds amazing. at the yeah, time. Yeah, that sounds um, like a good job. Yeah, and get. if you ever yeah. want to have your dignity go through the roof, just sleep on a sibling's couch for a year. Noted. And that's 
awesome. <laughs> and, and so I can either take the $5 sports internship or I can get a, you know, $50,000 a year car, all things I needed. And right. my brother just said, take the sports job. He said, I've got a real job doing something I don't really care for. And it's soul draining. He said for about a week, it was interesting that, that to drive into downtown, go up the elevator, have a suit and tie on, show up to work, whatever. He goes, it, it was interesting for about a week. And right. now it's just crushing my soul. And uh, he goes, take the other job and see if it works out. And he goes, someday you might pay me back for living on my couch and buying your dinners and whatever. And I, you might give me some free tickets to a, a soccer game featuring Guatemala. So I took his advice. I also called my father and he said, listen, if there's anyone who's ever should work in sports, it's you. From out of the womb, that was your thing. Cool. And then I called a rich uncle who had been one of the early people in on Ex Exxon and had retired and been taught international business at the University of Texas. And he said, take the real job. You're bankrupt. Your family's bankrupt. You don't have any money. And what you're doing sounds like a kind of an entitled rich kid move. So first take care of your yourself and then eventually you take care of your family and then so take the real job. And wanting to have a life of poverty, I took my brother and father's advice and did the thing I wanted to do. And it's and luckily for me, it's paid off. Thank you for leaving your life of poverty momentarily <laughs> to join us, by the way. That's an incredible story. And I, I, I think that's a hard decision to make. First, the thing that I'm most surprised about is that your brother, who you'd been spending the year on his couch, advised you to take a position that would not remove you from the couch. I think yeah. that's the thing. And I actually hadn't lived there for a year on his couch yet. I, that was the beginning of the year. Oh, I got you. Yeah. And then the other thing was, he's, he was, for someone who, we were different people. And so I was the athlete, whatever, and the gregarious one and the student council officer and for yeah. the fraternity boy and whatever. And he was more shy. He was anxious and shy before it was cool and whatever <laughs> one in our generation is. Right. <clears throat> and, but he was never the jealous one just because he was always doing the right thing and always the good guy and whatever. He, yeah. he was never for a second, the jealous in the prodigal son story. He was never the one who stayed, who always did the right thing, got upset that the other brother was reconciled to his father. And so I'll owe him for the rest of his life for that, because he was very much a, an, an encouraging, uh, helping person yeah. because we always were so close together in age. The fact that I was a you know bigger and a better athlete than he was and younger could create some problems if someone were emotionally sure. built to not, not enjoy that or not be able to handle that. But he was always able to detach it and just give me the best advice for me, not color through the filter of his reaction to it. That's cool. Which is a gift. Yeah, I can relate to that. My brother is three years older than me, but we were best friends our whole lives. Mm -hmm. And I always say we wouldn't have been as good friends if I was the older brother. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But he was, right. when I started skateboarding, we both started skating at the same time. He had the passion for it. I had the talent. Yep. And so he was promoting me. He was filming me, driving me all over and almost my agent in a lot of ways to, you know, I definitely would have not in those early days had those early foundational sponsors That's if right. it wasn't for him. And so it's super cool to have those bonds and that they make you so much better. That's right. And it's cool that people like that, like me and my brother are exactly the same, 
even like voice, every, he's a little taller, hard to be shorter, but he's the introvert and I'm the extrovert of the same person. Mm-hmm. And, but he's just a better version of yeah, myself is what I would say. So you joined the Dallas International Sports Commission. So mm-hmm. what was that job like once you got it? It was, it was funny because we were officed in the headquarters of McKinsey and company, which is a very high powered consulting company, the exact sort of company that did not want me working there, but they had these fabulous offices. And the greatest thing to me was they have all these young people, college graduates who are very smart working there before they send them to get their MBA, then have them come back as more high powered consultants later. But the thing I loved about it is that since they were working those people to death is that they had great offices and fully stocked kitchenettes because essentially every single one of them ate dinner there every single night for three years. And so for someone who was dirt poor, oh my God, all the mac and cheese you could ever hope for. And so I was thrilled to be able to in such kind of high quality offices and, and that sort of thing and, and have that level of support. But when you are then asked to go make copies, you walk into a copier room and the copier is the size of a Cessna. And it's slightly more complicated to operate than a plane. (laughs) And so you walk in there and they have people who are officed in the copier room because they do so many documents back in the day. Oh, yeah. That they're they're creating like books and all these reports and all these things. I've been one of those people. And they know how to operate every single thing about it. So then every time you walk in and you have this look on your face, they'll look at you and they'll always ask the same question. They say, how many degrees do you have? And I said, two. And they go, oh, you have no shot of operating this machine then. Because like this, the thing was, the more yes. education you had, the less likely you're ever going to be able to figure that out on your own. And so they would come in and help you. And it was great. And then one of the researchers was this great guy that was like totally a professorial guy, always looked like totally unkempt outfit and whatever. Uh, looks like he always slept in his clothes, but just like the greatest guy ever. And so when I, one of the things we did at the sports commission is when we were Roger Staubach had come to us and said, Hey, I got this weird call. This hockey team is looking to leave Minnesota and they want to come to Dallas. So he calls my boss. So she calls me into her office and said, Hey, can you go do some research on this? And we had, were, we had changed offices to the Tom Landry sports and medicine research center over at, with Baylor at that time, these really yeah. great offices. So I went back to that same guy, that research guy in the copy room. And I just said, I need, you didn't have the internet back then. The internet didn't exist back then. So they had this thing called the LexisNexis wire, which was the precursor to the internet. Yeah. And he said, just give me five terms to look up and then go grab lunch, then come back and I'll have, see what's on the wire. So I just, Norm Green, Minnesota North Stars, New Arena, leaving Minnesota, whatever, wrote down, came back, had lunch, come back. And he had a stack of papers because I'd asked him for articles in the last two months and he had a stack of papers that would choke a yak. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh my God. Cause I, I didn't know I'd already promised. This is like a Tuesday afternoon. I promised I'd have something back to her, but a report the next day. Oh yeah. Cause I'm a go getter. Oh yeah. And I love Roger Staubach. So I was like, Oh yeah, yeah. If Roger needs something. Then I'm going to do it. So he gives me this <laughs> stack of papers. I'm like, Oh my God. I've signed my death warrant. Yeah. So I go back to the office and I'm just like, so now it's every paper you did on a deadline or test studying for tests you did in college. So I'm just tearing through them and I'm organizing them by subject matter. And, and so then I have to write my memo. And so I go back the next day and say, 
the Minnesota North Stars are moving. They have to move. They have no choice. They're going to mow down the current arena and build this thing called the Mall of America, which is supposedly going to be a big deal. He was That'll gonna, never work. He was going to go to Anaheim. He almost has deal done. And then Disney did a movie called The Mighty Ducks of Anaheim. It made a $100 million profit. And so now they're going to do an expansion team. And they took his arena deal. So now he is homeless. And the season starts in September. Incredible. And it is January 2nd. So he is dead. Like he is desperate. And he's in big trouble. And his former secretary sued him for sexual harassment because he told her she shouldn't eat cookies or she'll get fat and no man will want her. And you can imagine this is in 93. You can imagine how that would go over now. It didn't go over. Her father was also on the city council. It did not go over well then. And so I said, yeah, he's serious. He's going to move. And she said, okay, great. And so she calls him back. He flies into Dallas the next day. And the car I was driving, which I didn't have a car, so I borrowed my stepfather's car. And it was such a Beverly Hillbilly piece of junk truck mainly because of things I had done to it in the prior six months. Of course. I had to borrow a co-worker's car to go pick up the owner of the North Stars at the airport because mine was so embarrassing. So I went and got hers washed. We go to the airport. What kind of car was it? It was like a Maxima. That was the height of luxury. (laughs) (laughs) My concept of the height of luxury in 1993 was was a car with working air conditioning. (laughs) I was like. You could pick up a sports president. Yeah. Owns a team. Maxima. Perfect fit. So we go do that, bring to the meeting. So then we have Roger Staubach, my boss, Tom Landry, and me. Holy know, crap. Talking about the Sesame Street song of which one does not belong in that meeting. It was me. I was the one that didn't belong. Yes. And so I was just in from the very beginning. And wow. it just, it worked. And in the end, the Mavericks had a chance to block it because they had an exclusivity on the arena. And, and the president of the Mavericks hated the idea of a hockey team coming down there because he didn't want the competition. Right. And he had been the president of the Buffalo Braves basketball team that had gotten essentially kicked out by the hockey team. Oh, back so in the they already day. had a bad experience. And so he already hated hockey, which like some Americans do. And so then he they moved that team to San Diego, became the Clippers, and then eventually became the Los Angeles Clippers. Who? His name was Norm Sanju. No, the Clippers? Oh, uh, the San Diego Clippers. <laughs> or are they now? <laughs> Aren't no, they the, the it's, just a, it's, it's just a, a Clippers joke. Oh, sorry, all. Yeah. I was just. Yeah, I thought they're still the Clippers. And so. They well, are. They just had an epic collapse. In oh, the that's true. That's so. right. They got. Yeah. But so then Norm Saju hooked on with the Mavs and he he was trying to protect the Mavericks rights. Yeah. And uh, so Stahlback, who was the hero, the reason that stars are in Dallas is because of Roger Stahlback. He goes and talks to the owner and just says, listen, I'm in corporate relocation services and every day we're moving companies from the expensive coasts to Dallas and it's great for the city. It's bringing more people, bringing more jobs. It's great for the economy. It's great for the growth. And a lot of the people where they come from, they have uh, hockey and we're the largest city in America that does not have all four major sports. And so really it may not be great for the Mavs in the short term, but it's great for the city in the long term. Yeah. And so Don Don Carter, I think it was his name, said, okay. And so we moved them there and, and everything worked out. Wow. And so you were with the stars for a few more years after that, from what I understand. Yeah. So I was I was I still got hired while they're still playing in Minnesota. So you can imagine how well that went over 
with a group that was still in Minnesota. You can imagine yes. when you're you're there, you're playing out the string, you're not going to make the playoffs, you're leaving this hotbed of hockey, and then they show this 26-year-old idiot with the new Stars logo <laughs> on, and it just I, I was very tone deaf to the fact that all their friends were going to lose their jobs there <laughs> and all their families were going to have to move. And so I was just, just, Hey guys, excited for oh, whoever's yeah. job. Oh my gosh. Just, Don't you just love the can stars? You, can you imagine? Yeah. Aren't you also excited to leave and come to Dallas? Just Opie yeah. about it. And so they were just all just clawing their eyes out when they were reading about it. And, but I was in charge of helping everyone move there, getting the office set up, getting all these things figured out. And, and it was really a great experience for me. That's incredible. So how did you, so, cause eventually you're the executive vice president of the stars. So yeah. what was, you're really good at the copy machine. You, you figured <laughs> that out eventually. Apparently. I even had to be helped with that. I was not even good at that. So the thing that was, the thing that worked for me was I was a project person. Okay. I was just a, really for about the first five years of the stars, I didn't actually have a boss. I didn't directly work for anyone. Okay. So I worked for the owner, the president, and all four vice presidents, but I wasn't, I didn't have a direct report. And so my first job was assistant to the president. That was the owner and president, Norm Green. And so just anything he said was, hey, to this. And then what happened was part of his job, he, he was a real estate developer, was we're going to renovate the arena to be able to play hockey in it. And so he was going to do that with Austin Commercial and the architects. But he also wanted to spend the summer in France. So <laughs> he hired them and then he gave me a number, a phone number and a fax number for the house he was going to be in, in France. And then he left. Incredible. So I'm 26 and I don't know how to do anything. And now I just know that I have to do everything through him from France over a fax machine. And so we had to set the office up. We had to renovate the arena. And all of it was just talking to the architect talking to the contractor, sending the stuff to him in France, calling him at a friendly time for that in France, and then getting his notes and getting what he wanted done, then calling the architect, then calling the contractor, wow. then calling the city about the arena and just all that, and which turned out to be perfect training for everything I've done since. But at oh, the yeah. time, it made me bleed from my eyeballs and nostrils and ears almost <laughs> on a daily basis. I was I'm so sure. stressed out. So then they finally hired Jim Lights from the Detroit Red Wings to come in and be the president. And so he comes in and about the second day there, he calls me into his office and he said, hey, your title is assistant, the president, and now I'm the president and I don't need an assistant. So I'm going to fire you in about two weeks when I get around to it. So I just thought I'd give you a heads up until, <laughs> nice to get a heads until up. then, just keep doing what you're doing Yeah, and just don't worry about it. Yeah. And I was like is this what it's like to be in the mob like that? Like, what are we doing here? But I was so busy and I was overwhelmed with all the things we had to do. I still had to get in the office at eight, talk to my, talk to Norman France because they're at six hours. He was like six or seven hours ahead. Then make all of you know, get all of his notes. And then I had to interact with everybody. Then I had to, to then get all their questions, then type up a thing and fax it to him. So then the next morning we could go over those questions and give him an update on the things he'd already, you know, decided the day before. So after about two weeks of that, Jim Lights calls me back into his office. And in addition to that, I had to essentially bring, welcome everyone who was coming into town, set up their hotels, get them apartments, take them out to dinners and stuff as a king of the young people. I was 26 right. and the 
sixth oldest person who worked there. So everyone that we hired was younger than me. So I was the person who showed him where to go out to dinner, show him where to go out and whatever. And so after two weeks, he, he called me back in and said, oh, I was just kidding about that firing you thing. He said, you are indispensable around here. Keep doing it. We'll figure out your future later. And here's a 10% raise for me being mean to you. <laughs> nice. I was like, and at that time. Scare me again. Yeah. I was like, for four grand, you can say whatever you want to me whenever you want to. I don't want to make that too intimate, but for four grand, I'll do anything. So that kind of got me into the running the arena on game days, working on the design and construction of the American Airlines Center, working on the design and construction of the practice facility headquarters in Frisco, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it was just lucky. That's incredible. And it sounds like hard work is what, and you have a story with Circuit of the Americas too. But it sounds like the fact that, I don't know, you just seem like somebody who's just very so dedicated to the team and the cause that regardless of your own personal situation, that you just being so dedicated to the goal has res- resulted in great things for you. It's, it, there's uh, so there's this thing called World Vision and they Catholic charity and they raise money to send helpful things to villages in Africa. So yes, one of the things for, so for Christmas, sometimes the present, one of the presents we'll get our kids is we'll have them pick what's the thing that you want to send to this village. And so one of my daughters, Alexandria would always pick a hardworking donkey because she thought that was awesome. A hardworking donkey. And it's the least fun gift of anything in the catalog, but it might be the more, most useful thing. And that's how sure. I would say that I've been in my career is I've just been a, not a, not a supremely intelligent, not a supremely talented person. I've just been really hardworking and smart enough and useful enough to be put in situations to where I essentially solve other people's problems for them. Because when you start out and like where I am now as the president of a team, people say, I really want to get into this. I want to get into the NHL. Or I want to get into esports. or I want to get into this. How can I do it? Yeah. And the first thing they'll say, oh, it's been my dream to do this. And the first thing I'll say is you have to understand, I don't care at all about making your dreams come true. I'm not your mother. I'm not in charge of your dream achievement. I have problems that I have to solve. I've got a wife. I've got four kids. I've got a career. I've got a mortgage. I've got uh, kids going through college. And and then my company has challenges. Uh, We have to grow fans. We have to increase revenue. We have to do things more efficiently. So really, the only thing I care about is solving these problems for our company because if, if I can solve our company's problems and challenges, then that takes care of my personal and professional ones. So really, instead of presenting me with what your dream is, which I don't care about because it's not high up on my list, you should present yourself as how you can help us corporately and me professionally solve sure. our challenges because that's what we will spend time and money on. That's We'll spend resources on people that have the skills or the availability to do that. So that's, it worked for me, which is I was smart enough and uh, had enough teamwork from, I played traditional sports in my life. So being a part of a team was, was a, you know, natural thing for me. And I had always had success by, by being a useful part of a team. And it worked when I was a kid and it worked professionally. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting because I, for me personally, what I've found has worked very well in developing a network and um, people providing opportunities for me is that I, my goal 
is to think of other people first. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that if I do something for somebody with no, I'm not doing it so you'll do me a favor. Mm -hmm. I'm just doing it to do it because I know I know what the result will be, mm -hmm. but I'm not expecting it. Mm -hmm. And somebody like yourself is very busy. You've got probably a lot of people who have hopes and dreams who they're casting on you and thinking, mm -hmm. oh, Jeff will give me a shot. Mm -hmm. He's, he's going to give me an opportunity. And I think it's a great point for people listening to say, everybody's thinking about themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's not a criticism. It's that sometimes most people, you have to think about yourself and you don't have the bandwidth to think about others. You, mm -hmm. you just stated all the things you got to yeah. work on. The way that I can get you to help me is that if I help you first, and I think having this community first or yourself second approach is just, it's incredibly beneficial. And it's also another way to make yourself stand right. out. Also, because most of the roles that, that you already laid out that you've been in are about connecting with other groups or people on behalf of the company you're in, right. whether it's GameStop or PRG or whatever. That's one of the reasons you know they hired you. So your job was to make these connections with people that, your company could be helpful to, and they could be helpful to your company. And most of my jobs have been in the operating my company or a part of my company. And so my focus has been internal for the most part in, in those ways. And yours has been external focus, right? I want to make these connections. And so what people, which should I, and this next thing I think is a legitimate thing, which is when people talk about like the good old boys network or structural entitlement or things like that, in terms of your warm network of people or people that kind of look like you or you vibe with, sure. they get an advantage. It's a real thing. And it's a evolutionary shortcut that our brain takes to essentially saying, I've got really an unlimited thing, uh, list of things I need to do to succeed. So I'm going to take as many shortcuts as I can to try to be as efficient as I can right. to reach the desired successful result I have. I'm not really like when I need someone selling sponsorships, I'll go to people whom I've had success with in the past that I have a relationship with. I can just get right down to the point. Right. I know they're good at it. And if yeah. they're right for that thing, I'll go get them first. And so then they're like, you're showing favoritism to someone that you've known for 20 years. And I'm like, I've worked with a lot of people. I've known a lot of people for 20 years <laughs> and I'm calling a half a percent of them. So the for some of those people that I have worked with for 20 years and I would never call with an opportunity then right. my level of knowledge about them works to their uh, negative, has a negative effect because yeah. I know a lot about them and know that they're not right for this situation. But for very few of them, I'll say that person would be perfect for that. And so that is why with companies and education opportunities, we do need to improve the diversity of kind of the people on the kind of the base level internships and things like that. Right. Because they need to be able to form those relationships because really what you're trying to do is you're trying to eliminate all the unknowns or barriers that get in your way and you want to be the solution that someone picks. Because when a job becomes uh, available, it's usually, a, oh my gosh, the company realizes we need someone who can do this. Yeah. And, and there's not usually a six-month search for that person. It's usually a, we need to find someone in the next six days who could do this. So it's either a skill-based thing or it's a, a pricing thing. We can't afford to pay for this, so we need this. And so then people just shortcut the process and say, oh, like our new CEO, we've hired five people in the last couple of weeks 
all people that he worked with at some point because he was hired to do a specific thing with content with our company. And so who's he go? He's goes back to his last 30 years of doing this. And he picks people that are like little ninjas with certain skill sets right. from his past yep. because he knows them and he knows they can do the job and they know him. So they are willing to pack up and leave California and move to Dallas, Texas because right. they know him and trust him. Yep. And so that warm network and that experience is very important because it decreases the risk that the person is not going to be a good fit for the role or the culture Absolutely. of the company. And, and so that's why in those jobs, it was great to be an intern. Uh, when I was an intern for the sports commission, I got offered a job by the Dallas, the city of Dallas economic development department uh, department. I got offered a job by world cup Dallas when Dallas was selected to be a world cup city. And I got uh, offered another job by this other person who's a board member that we interacted with because young, sharp, hardworking, cheap employees are very valuable, right? Yes. So it's like having a quarterback on his rookie con contract in football. Oh my gosh. If you can get a good quarterback on his get rookie him before contract. He's up for that big right. contract. Get him before he's expensive because, yeah. because you think, Hey, I can train them. I can get them to do something. They seem like they can, they're smart enough and they're cheap. So right. there's very low risk. And yeah. so the, and the NFL also says your availability is your greatest ability. If you're mm. talented and hurt, true, not great. So if you can show up to work every day and solve other people's problems and be low risk, then you've got opportunity and then you just have to go find it. And then what's great about, especially in sports is there's getting the, the first jobs hard, but then most of the other people are up here. So now you've got all this open space in the organization to where if you do a good job there, they'll promote you, keep going. Yeah. Uh, and they, cause they don't want to lose you. And so that was what was great for me going from the sports commission to the stars is there were the top level executives. There's a bunch of 21 year olds. Right. And as the 26 year old, I really had almost an uh, open birth to grow for eight. And that's why I was there for 18 years is I had a new job every 18 months or two years there wow. because there's just no one in between me and the top vice presidents. So it was just very lucky. And then you went, so you did Circuit of the Americas. And then how, how did you go from this very traditional sports? I don't know. Is F1 traditional sports as well? It's been around for a long time. Yeah, it's, right? it's, I would say that it's a kind of an exotic international specialty sport. Yeah. So, yeah. So how do I make that transition? So one of the, one of the guys who got hired to come work for the stars had been in Detroit with Jim Lights and Jeff Kogan. Yeah. He came down and his job was to get uh, a new arena deal. He did. And then as soon as that was done, he went off to go do something else. And eventually he started a talent headhunting company in sports. Okay. And so now he's huge in that industry here in America. And so luckily for me, when he came in, he was given some other things to do. And so I got assigned to be one of his employees. And, and so he liked me well enough. And when the opportunity, and then when he left about 12 years later, 13 years later, I'd risen to be the executive vice president of sales and marketing at the stars because the things we were selling and marketing were related to the American airline center products. And I had been in charge from a staff level of working on that project for three or four years. Yeah. And so that kind of led to the natural progression to that role. And we were in bankruptcy. Our bankruptcy now has become a theme of this thing. And Tom Hicks had put the teams into bankruptcy the Rangers were being auctioned off. Wow. If, you, if you remember, that was a kind of an interesting thing. Mark Cuban was 
going against the current Rangers ownership yeah. group in that auction. And then the Stars, they were trying to find someone to take them. Wow. And so this F1 opportunity came up. And uh, the guy that the league had put in to run the team was really a great guy, uh, really old school, kind of General Patton type guy named yeah. Tony Tavares. He'd run the Anaheim Mighty Ducks for Disney. Yeah. And and so when we when he first came in, he just he couldn't believe what a mess we were. And then after about six weeks, he reversed his tune and said, one of the smartest people I've dealt with. You guys really have done a great job in a weird situation. And uh, so when I got the call about F1 and talking about, I went to him and just said, hey, here's what I got this call. I got this offer. What do you think? And he said, listen, he said, you've been here for a really long time. And whoever the new owner is, likely they need to be able to, so they need in a way like a scapegoat. The things are not good right now. Now it's clear that your team being the owner being bankrupt and whatever, like it's clear that's the big issue. But as they come in as the new owner, you're not necessarily wanting that to be the problem because you need to, at least emotionally and intellectually and psychologically and spiritually, you need to be able to say, here's some things we can focus on right now and uh-huh. take these steps for. So he said, my guess would be that a change of scenery would be good for both the new regime coming in and for you professionally. Because if you don't leave yeah. now, you never, you should never leave. And you may not have a choice. They may come in and wash you out. He said, so why don't, why not pick your spot? It sounds like a great opportunity. Very interesting. Austin, Texas is really cool. And F1 is really interesting. And he said, so he said it might be a a good opportunity. And I think he was exactly right because every single meeting I was in for years there, I'd walk in and people go, oh, and Jeff was the first employee of the Dallas Stars. Like I was... (laughs) the librarian or the historian or something, but it wasn't, you know, really about the things I was doing then. It was more of this honorific title. And so it was just, I I think it was, it scared me to change. And so when I came to that realization that I was a little afraid that to do it, I thought, well, now you have to do it. If you're, if you think that it might be too big of a job and you may may not be able to make that change. Now you have to do it. Yeah, so it's a little bit like I'm sure in, in skateboarding, if there's a trick that you're afraid to try, you have to do it. Right. Absolutely. And More so, bodily harm in that situation, but yes, yes. absolutely. Exactly and so, right. uh, so we made it, made the move. And then ironically, they brought my old boss in to be the new president of the star. So it would have been fine if I'd stayed, but yeah. I'm so happy I left because at this point it would have been like, I'd been there for 30 years. Right. And then it's can never leave. Yeah. Then I'd just be part of the furniture. So how did the, how did you go from circuit of Americas to then esports? Like who contacted you and said, come do this thing that is the new thing maybe. So I was, I was at circuit of Americas for about five and a half years. And F1 is spectacular and terrible. Because the series, Bernie Ecclestone was in charge of the series and he made every dollar. And so it was, but it was an unbelievable experience. And I got to go to yeah. Australia and see an F1 race there. I got to go to Montreal, That's which cool. is phenomenal. And got to go to England and stay in, stay in a, a mansion that had one of the battles of the English Civil War of Crazy. Oliver Cromwell versus the par- parliamentarians in 1644 <laughs> and there's, there's the old castle walls 
are there in pieces. So if you don't watch your step, you could fall 50 feet to your death in the yard type thing. So a lot of really cool experiences in F1, but everything is at this quality. Like it's just F1 yeah. is now just a adjective to mean the highest possible ridiculous level of quality. Yeah. So if someone, someone walked by and you go, oh my God, that's the you know, best thing person I've ever seen. That is F1 right there. One time we were at the race and Andy Roddick and Brooklyn Decker walked by. And I turned to the person I was with, they walked by and go, did you see Andy Roddick right there? And they're like, no, because I was <laughs> checking out Brooklyn Decker. And I was like, right. Brooklyn Decker was right here. And he's like, oh, you're an idiot. I'm checking out Andy Roddick. That was embarrassing. <laughs> so, Have you seen his serve? <laughs> Have you seen his ham commercials? They're so good. And Miss Brooklyn Decker. So as time machine. That's a, when yeah. you get the time oh, machine. That's geez, another yeah. one. Yes. So as I'm talking, uh, the guy was the president of the circuit. In the early years, there was this great guy named Steve Sexton, but he'd run the Kentucky Derby, Churchill Downs, all this other stuff. Uh, great guy. And he had left after a couple of years because he just didn't vibe with the owner of the track because for a variety of reasons. And, and he wanted to get his family back to Dallas. And so yeah. he went back and he started working on developing a consulting practice inside of HKS, who's the architect group that did the American Airlines Center. And we'd worked together for years at that time. They did the new Cowboys stadium. They did the old and new Rangers stadiums. Yeah. They did the new Chargers Ram stadium, the uh, new Viking stadium and a bunch of other projects. And so he was developing a consulting group because as they do every new stadium, they're developing new expertise and every client they have, the last name they have is 30 or 40 years old. Of course. And so yeah. it's like you need a translator and ambassador to the team to help ironically get them up to the level like they select the architects because Populist or HKS has all this experience and all these huge projects and they have right. all the cutting edge stuff. But then for the first six or eight months, you got to pry them out of, don't just ask for the same thing you have right now. That's slightly better. Right. It's just a, that's just the small incrementalism of improvement that I talked about in my career is death when you're developing a 50 year facility, right? Like right. you needed to have a space age jump, but the current customers and the current people working there, they don't want, oh no, don't, no, we don't want that. We want this with seats that are an inch wider and a cup holder. And you're right. like, you're going to spend a billion dollars to get the same seating configuration, the yeah. seats an inch wider, an inch more leg room and a cup holder. Like, let's think bigger than that. They got this day job that's taking all their time and energy. And so it takes a while. So we were, so he was doing that. So he invited me to come join him. And so I, as I think one of the stories that we've talked about previously was I was being rinsed out of the circuit by the president of the organization because there's some cost cutting choices and he submitted that. And I was a part of the list since I was the number two person there and the second most expensive person there. And uh, as I was looking for my next gig, I connected with Steve and he said, yeah, we're putting this thing together. It probably will be ready in about six months or so. And, and then the day after the F1 race occurred, the owner called me and said, Hey, would you mind if I fired the president instead and kept you? And I was like, wouldn't bother me. Yeah. So probably wouldn't enjoy it. He didn't ask me to submit my options for cost cutting <laughs> in the organization. Right. So I stayed there for another year and then I was leaving to go join Steve in this consulting group. And then literally the day I was 
doing that because we were had to get through the next F1 race. The day after the race, I walked into the office and another guy who'd worked for him at Churchill Downs said, did you hear the news? And I was like, no, I've been drunk and asleep ever since the checkered flag <laughs> of the F1 race. I have not heard anything. Yeah. He said, Steve has an operable brain cancer and he's got a week to live. Oh my God. And so I was freaked out. I text him. His wife answers me back saying he cannot speak wow. like he is, he's dying. So I drive up there and I do get to go to his, he's in hospice at his home. I get to go hold his hand and tell him I love him and whatever. And then he dies about two weeks after that. So then now I'm in this kind of arranged marriage that I've been you know, brought to HKS. Uh, they knew, knew me from the old days. So now the person who put this together is literally dead. Yes. And so now I show up and they're like, please still take this job because now you're the only one here and we really would like this to work. And, but I hadn't been around them in 20 years. Wow. So I had to reconnect that relationship, start working on the Texas Rangers new project, which will be great. Now they can actually have people inside of it. It's a phenomenal place. But so then we had to start that up. So I worked there for a couple of years, was loving it. We we're bidding on projects in U Darvish's old baseball team in Hokkaido. Huh. We were going bidding on soccer developments in Indonesia, multi-billion dollar projects in Hong Kong, as well as projects in America and Europe. We were consulting for English Premier League teams about how to renovate their stadiums to create more revenue to give them a chance to avoid re relegation. Just really interesting projects. And the architecture group has offices all over the world. They've got offices in China. So they're like, hey, can we renovate the bird's nest for the Chinese government? They would wow. really appreciate that. And I'm just thinking, hey, I'm from Oklahoma. I can't, this is, this may not be the best idea. Yeah. And, uh, but it was fascinating. And so then during that time, we had a reunion of old stars employees at a stars game. So they invite us all back. So we had this big kind of reunion. And as I was leaving the game that day, Shea Butler, who works for us with uh, NB Gaming, yeah. was working for the stars at the time. And so when he saw me, he said, hey, do you mind if I call you later and talk about I've got this career decision I've got to make. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, sure. And uh, so he called me and said, Hey, I know you worked here for a long time and loved it and whatever, but then you left and like, why did you do that? And what was it like? And then he told me about the opportunity he had to, to go into with NB gaming, going to competitive yeah. gaming. And I just said, you have to do it because if everything you're telling me about the audience and the opportunity is true, I said, it will kill you. It will kill you to leave the stars because you love them so much. And it almost turns into a cult, right? You know, like you're so, you live and die with every game, every goal, every draft pick. It's just, it's, it is like a cult. It's a very fun cult. Loss is worse when they're during the Stanley Cup than before. First of all, the losses are worse than the wins are awesome. So yeah. that's just a terrible algorithm of working with the team. Yes. And then as the stakes get higher, winning the winning for winning the conference finals is the greatest thing because yeah. you've beat this team you're really afraid of. You've won this huge thing and you're going to the Stanley Cup. So you still have something to look forward to. But you've just we beat the Colorado Avalanche two years in a row in game seven that in the Western Conference Finals. And then we got to go play in the Stanley Cup. So that's like for a moment in time, that's the greatest thing. When you win the Stanley Cup, it's great, but it's also over 
and all your adrenaline leaves. Uh, you're exhausted. You're emotionally exhausted. You're physically exhausted, spiritually spent, all that stuff. And then it's over. Yeah. And then the new season's starting up. In like With an expectation. 12 weeks. And you're right, like. Right, because hockey's like a gear round. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you got this train coming. So like when we got done with the parade, like one of my jobs, when we won the Stanley Cup, I was the highest ranking person in the organization that was not a vice president. And so the vice president was like, we can't plan the Stanley Cup parade because we'll jinx it and we don't want to have that responsibility. So you I wish got, I could. That's a great out. Yeah, it was, it was great. So don't you, want to jinx so, it. So you do it. So <laughs> I have to go by myself with, thank God, the city of Dallas had a special events department and this wonderful woman named Phaedra. And combined with the people who are in the reunion arena and these civic leaders, Barry Andrews, who owned Miller uh, Beer Distributing, who was a godsend for us. And the mayor's assistant, Christy Sherrill, was great. And then Barry had an, an assistant who was like a lifesaver. I, I've struggled to remember her name right now. But like this little group of Gilligan's Island characters get together and we plan this parade. You can't tell anybody. You have to coordinate all this stuff with the police and the route right. and the city services and whatever. But you can't let it out. I don't know if you remember when the Mavs parade route came yeah. out during the finals. Yep. Did not go over great. And uh, and so we were having Clyde Watts build these floats in the uh, Fair Park automobile building secretly. Um, and yeah. so when we finally beat the Sabres on a Sunday morning, we fly back to Dallas. And I have to go straight to Fair Bar Park to meet with Clyde Watts. And as we're, he's welding these things together, Craig Ludwig, who's one of our def defensemen, calls me and said, hey, how many floats do we have and how many people can fit? And I was like, we have enough for every player. And he goes, no, Pantera wants to be in the parade. I was like, <laughs> incredible. <laughs> of course they want to be in the parade. Of course we want Pantera in the parade. You didn't plan for that? Well, like, of course we want Pantera because during the second round, the band Pantera is from the Dallas yeah, area. Right. And, and Ludwood was talking to him and we we're struggling with the St. Louis blues in the second round. And so, they were talking and he said, we really need a song that can fire the boys up before like game six. No way. And so Pantera did the Dallas Stars song, put it on a cassette tape and had it courier to St. Louis. And so Craig gets it. He's like his skates on, his shin pads on, his pants on, whatever. Gets the tape, ones and puts it into a boom box and plays it. And like the players are like, no way. That's awesome. And so they go out and they win and they, we beat the St. Louis Blues. So to say that we have, played that song to death since <laughs> would be an understatement. Yeah. But so since they had given us that song, we got put them in the parade. So I had to kick four players off one float and double and like distribute an X person on every other float and then give one float to Pantera. And, and so the, that's just a career skill you have to have or else you shouldn't apply right. to work in sports. Noted. I have no idea what the question was, by the way. How'd you get into esports? <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, so I talked to Shay and I said, you have to take the job. I said, yep. it's, it will kill you to leave. You will regret it always. And the new job will kill you because they don't have any infrastructure. You'll be one of three people there. But, and so you'll have to do things you haven't done in by yourself in 10 years and you'll work harder than you've ever worked in your life. And it will be harder because you'll have to be creating things instead of just 
here's our package, here's our products, right. here's what we put up, here's my lead list, when I, whatever. So you're in a pattern now. But I said, it'll be the greatest thing that ever happened to you because you will grow tremendously. You'll learn things that you will never learn in the next 10 years of the Dallas Stars. And your network will increase. You'll still have all these people that you know, but you'll get all this whole new set. You'll be surprised by some of the connections and you'll be much better for it. And I said, listen, right. I didn't, you know, really want to leave the stars, but now that I've been at the circuit and now at HKS with this consulting group, I said, my worldview is just yeah. so much more diverse, so many different experiences. And that if I stay at the stars, I would just have the same iteration of right. so like they did the winter classic. That was great. They had the draft. That was great. But all those are like steps on the same path. Yeah. And so while they're, they're great, they're also not things that you can then repeat very often. And so I'm happy for them and they had great people doing it. But I think for me, it's just interesting to learn completely new things. Yeah. And so then about six months later, he called me and said, Hey, do you mind if we catch up? And I said, no, sure. And he said, I said, well, how's your thing? And he goes, it's everything you said it would be. They are killing me. I love it. It's incredible. It's terribly hard but we're trying to create essentially something out of almost nothing. And so he said, which is why I called because they keep saying they need a president of the company and the things they say they want. You're the only person that totally makes sense. All these things. And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm pretty happy where I am, but I don't mind talking to him if you want to set something up. Yeah. And we were bidding on this project in Japan, which they won. And the, retractable roof ballpark in Hokkaido, Japan is wow. going to be so spectacular that it's so great. But we're flying back from Tokyo. And so when you fly back from Tokyo to Dallas, you leave at noon there and you get back at 11 a.m. same day here. Okay. But you just also had an 18 hour flight. So you're. That's the time travel mission. Yeah. That's a, yes. Yes. Anyway. So the, so I get back, I go back to my apartment. I'm living in Austin, but working in Dallas. So I have an apartment here and I take a shower and whatever. And go out to Los Angeles and meet with Randy Chaplin and then Mike Ruffell. Yep. And, and after about four hours of just listening to the history of Envy, their moving to Dallas, the vision they had for what they wanted to accomplish, I was completely blown away yeah. about just, oh my God, this is, it's like everything I'd been doing in my professional life to then was like pointed at this moment. And it was yeah. the perfect uh, combination of everything that I've been doing. And one of the interesting things was in my role with HKS as, as this consultant, I had to go take each new project and I had to figure out like, so when you're trying to design a district with a soccer stadium as a stimulator uh, asset in Indonesia, it's fair to assume you don't know anything about Indonesia, right? So you, right. You fly there, you meet your coworkers who are based out of China. You meet there, you you know, sometimes meet for the first time. You sure. talk about everything. It's, they're an incredible group. And then you quickly go through the brief, who you're going to meet, what you're going to do. And so you go through the first meeting to see what it is that they think they want. But then you have to do a ton of research about their marketplace, their history, their culture, the sport, their past venues, and all these things. Because what they want is... They want the same thing that HKS did to take the Dallas Cowboys out of Texas Stadium into AT&T Stadium. But that took years of research and interaction with the Cowboys to, to have that 
macroevolutionary step, right? Yeah. And so to the client there, the Indonesian, you know, president of Indonesia, he's like, oh yeah, just take that old thing and give me a new thing. And you're like, okay, there's steps in between yeah. that old not thing. quite that simple. Old Close. Thing, old thing to new thing. Not quite you don't need to know that, but there's some steps. Yeah. So then in doing that, you have to really dive in. And it's almost like the same sort of research I had to do that night for the Minnesota North Stars is yeah. that you just have to get all these information inputs and then you have to synthesize it and say, okay, knowing what they've asked for, what is the best version of themselves you can deliver aspirationally that sure. they can grow into? And so that's the same thing about esports is that it's not about where have they been. It's not really about that. It's not even about really where they are. It's about right. what does, what, what does Envy Gaming, what does Team Envy, what is the fuel, what is the empire, what should they be in 20 years? What should that be? Mm. And then let's uh, start mapping to that and then say, okay, now what are the things Steps we have to achieve tweet. to get there? Because it can't just be show up and work hard every day. That has to happen. Yeah. But you have to have a Sherpa guide to the top of right. Everest or else just climbing hard is going to get you dead. And in our example, it will, you'll run out of money before you get there. If you don't have a plan to get there as efficiently as possible, and then you can't communicate that vision and plan to other people to get them to come on and bring support, you know, to you, sure. then you're never going to finish the climb. And so that's, that's why I got into esports is because the challenge of that climb, which I did not even know existed before that meeting yeah. became apparent that was the culmination of all the things I'd been doing all my professional life was to prepare for this climb. Wow. And as we, so as we look to the future and as we wrap up this episode, what my last question is for you is as the result of this, all this experience and your, your expertise in this area, what do you see as the future of events or the next thing that's coming that people should look out for whether it's figured out or whether it is not yet. Yeah. So I think it's, it's not figured out yet. There's big changes that happen like almost on a daily basis uh, yeah. in the esports industry, which, you know, and I think in a very ironic way, the pandemic is going to vastly improve the short term industry and prospects of esports because I think that the path that the leagues and teams were on was too tied to traditional sports and its format, structure, goals, yeah, and process, which is a natural thing. Oh, resports, we want to be whatever. Yeah, so there's oh, best well, practices to be applied, but it's also a different beast entirely. Well, and it also so. goes back to the why you don't build AT&T Stadium in Indonesia for the national soccer team and the biggest club team is because it is not the aspirational, authentic, best version of what they should be Got because it. they're not the Dallas Cowboys. Right. You know? And so right. even every NFL stadium, the Rams charger stadium is very different than AT&T stadium because it is authentic to what Stan Kroenke wanted to create for Los Angeles and not just right. football or sports or whatever you wanted for that city as a world center of events. And so with esports, I think they got a little traditional sports envy, frankly. Sure. And looking to validate themselves 
and their business and the things they were doing, they were trying to do that by making the direct connections to traditional sports instead of what's the best version of them they should be and yeah. the advantages that they already have over traditional sports, uh, that traditional sports is actually trying to move into the advantages that digital sports has. Sure. And so I think that this step back is, is almost like a, I don't want to say the wrong way, but it's almost like a near-death experience to say, what am I wasting all my time doing this thing? This near-death experience I just had just showed me what I really care about. And it's this. Right. And so yeah. that's why I feel like esports is now going in a better direction. And it's not that they won't still do the big live events and all those things. They will. It's not that home market teams are not good. They are. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't have to be like that. And not even every team in the same league has to have the same mm. story or path or structure or format or whatever. And not every sure. season has to be like the last season. It's like you have so much flexibility in this use that as an advantage because mm -hmm. you would say in a way like baseball now is trapped into a 162 game season. They would love not to have 162 games. Uh, basketball is trapped. So into with the an, fans. Yeah. So <laughs> and, and basketball would, is trapped into an 82 game season and they might actually have the leadership, the partnership with the players, et cetera, to actually change that back into a better 70 game season. Yeah. And they would be the only league able to do it because all the other ones have either mm. golden handcuffs, adversarial relationships between others and players or whatever it is, or lack of vision. But basketball right. has healthy live revenues, but outstanding broadcast revenues. And so they, and they're actually turned into the new global sport to join soccer. Yeah. And the other teams just don't have that. And so as you're getting into a more time slots are not the most dependent thing because we have a worldwide audience Basketball can right. go there with one league as a global sport instead of soccer with all of the leagues, leagues all yeah. over the place, right? Not the EPL, you would say, is the global league of soccer, but sure. La Liga, the German league, et cetera, the Italian league, French league, they're all big leagues. And so the NBA is great. The reason a team is worth $2 billion in the NBA when no team is worth $2 billion is because their slice of the league plus their team is worth $2 billion because mm -hmm. the NBA can be a world league. And so with esports, the NBA is probably the best comp to the opportunity that uh, okay. esports has is that you have global interest already. And so now you just have to layer in the authentic, vibrant studio audience yep. to make your digital assets animate with drama and love and fans. And because all of that makes it better. Right. The, if you're talking about a brand, you would say the reason uh, a sponsor wants to be a sponsor of a team is because that company essentially has an inanimate product and they want to animate it so that you'll care about it. You can only love something that can love you back. That's yeah. animate. That's why right. people love dogs. And so that's what these teams do for brands is they bring out the animated version of that by the connection of the fan to the brand of the team. And so with esports, I think the next thing that's coming is the digital content and the live experience merging together to where it animates the digital content yeah and it brings the global audience into the venue uh -huh. with the lot with the local audience because what every if you believe in god and you yeah. believe in a creator they why did god make us he made us to have a relationship he right. made us with him and with each other and so that connection between people which has now put at severe risk with you know technology getting in the way of us 
as Homer Simpson said, that beer is the cause of and the solution to all life's problems. <laughs> Technology can do the same thing, which is which you can bring people together through their common interests from wherever they are in the globe to right. bring them into this live arena with this event going on. And uh -huh. instead of just having a trolling chat or scrolling chat, chat that was Freudian, a trolling chat. <laughs> you can also have all these people, just like when you watch the NBA playoffs and have all the yeah. pictures of the people, except that was just very early phase one. They could be interaction. You should be able to hear their voices cheering along right. with the live crowd. And then you should be able to have the live crowd and the chat interacting and the broadcaster interacting with the chat and the whole thing in esports is way ahead there but traditional sports is going to catch up quickly yeah. because as they become global fan bases too the person in germany who can only get to the game in london once a year still wants to show that he loves the eagles and he wants to interact and he wants to be present and he wants the picture of him up on the panel by a fan that then sends hey i thought you'd like this picture Right. In a 60 foot video board at the Eagle Stadium, and someone takes a picture and said, Hey, I saw my buddy from Germany up on the board on this scroll, and I took a picture and I, I texted it to him, and now they're more engaged, right? Right. Over their common interests, which is their love of the Eagles. Interesting. Yeah. Which, why anyone loves Eagles, I don't know. We may never know. Yeah. Let's hope not. With that, thank you so much for taking the time. It's amazing to hear your stories. Of, you've been an inspiration to me through my business career as we've worked together a few times. And um, so just want to thank you for sharing that with our audience. So with that, that is a wrap on the DLC Drop podcast with guest Jeff Moore. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Future Eye podcast network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.